conditions, fractions, yes, please. Well, that's what the point we're at, isn't it? That we're aspiring towards uh, loving others in the same way as we're loving the close people. However, loving oneself is a prerequisite for loving anybody. Many people, maybe most people, say that they can love somebody else but not themselves. That doesn't work. Everybody here, I'm sure, knows, love thy neighbor as thyself. I'm quite sure there's not a single person here that hasn't heard that more than once. Well, how are you going to love your neighbor? Like yourself. So if you're going to love him like yourself, you're going to have to first love yourself and then your neighbor. It's impossible to love anybody truly without wanting something if one can't love oneself. That what we think is love that we give to those close ones has so many other connotations which need to be examined and they will slowly fall away when we see what love really means. Because when we love ourselves, what do we want? Nothing. What are we going to get? Nothing. So unless we start in the center, we can't go out in ever-widening circles. We have to work on all levels. We have to work on the level of actually learning to love ourselves. We have to work on the level of learning to love the close and dear people without any other connotation included. That they're there, that they're going to love me back, that they're going to behave the way I think they should, that they don't disappear, that they don't stop loving me, and all the rest of it. Without all that. When we can see that that is a, um, a way of purifying our own emotions and actually try to go in that direction, things fall into place. The loving kindness has to be manifested in someone. Mm -hmm. In my case, I would say in terms of the time and the energy that you spend. Thank you. 
Well, as far as the people in this room are concerned, you're here from 2 o'clock till 5.30, so there's plenty of time. And um, energy is something that you can gain through meditation. You have to first, of course, get the meditation to a concentrated point because thinking reduces the energy and uses it up. So when that has stopped eventually, you get enormous input of energy. So that's the two items that you're worrying about. But time and energy alone isn't going to do loving, going to make loving kindness. I know many people who've got time and energy for many things, but not for loving kindness. So the people that you love means that you're choosing a certain um, segment of the population, most likely a very small one. That's not metta. That's not unconditional love. That is the attachment and affection to a certain group of people who you probably call mine. And that's the um, mistake that we make when we think or talk about love. We can't even own our own body and mind, so how can we say mine about anybody else? So the, this is in Pali a kamatana, a working ground. This is a working ground. Get in there and work with your heart. It is the most important thing one can do in this life. Everything else is peripheral. And one doesn't have to sit here, and um, one doesn't have to listen to a teacher. Everybody has personal contact. Uh, from morning to night usually with other people. Very few people are so isolated that they don't have personal contact. Every single person is an object that you can use for generating more unconditional love than you did before. And there's no extra time needed nor any extra energy. You can do that wherever you are the tram cars ever run again, you can do it on a tram car. <laughs> what else? Yes. start small. We start where we're at. As I said earlier, if we have a road map and we see that this road map is correct, we can see that. And we also like the uh, destination that it leads to. The best road map and the best destination doesn't do the slightest bit of good 
unless we know at which street corner we're at. If we don't know which street corner we're at on a road map, you can't find your way. It's impossible. So, wherever we're at, that's where we pass. The Buddha gave us a road map to look at and said, look, this is the whole thing. But each step on the way, you can put, compare this also to getting up on a mountain top. Maybe one here said that on top of this mountain, the air is completely pure, that the view is magnificent, and everybody who's up there is t- totally happy. So one decides one's got to get up there too. So one starts climbing. And instead of watching each step on the way, one keeps one's eye on that mountaintop. First of all, it's usually shrouded in fog anyway, and one can't see it. And secondly, if one walks up like that, one's going to stumble every step. One's got to keep one's eye on the step that one is taking. And as one keeps on stepping, there's no other way than to go up. Especially if one has a guide that's been up there, as the Buddha has. So, it is each step that counts. And one of the important things is to enjoy that journey up to the mountaintop. And not to look at the end result, but wherever we're at, that's where we're working. And then we can enjoy that. Yes. You had your hand up, didn't you? Yes. Yes. Ah, oh, well, you weren't there here yesterday. Yes, I, I uh, gave that as an additional um, possibility to use, sound only not to start thinking that this is a truck and this is a lot of traffic and they're probably having this uh, rush hour traffic and all the rest of it, but to realize that the mind makes the reaction to the sound. It's sound only. I said that yesterday, that's why I didn't know it. Did anybody notice that they're meditating any better than the first day that they came? Good. Well, that's the way it should do. And from that one can deduce that one needs to do this every day. And uh, also that there is this um, path which through practice improves, like everything else. Okay, what else is that? Yes. The same everywhere. Everybody has the same problem. There, uh, it's uh, very rare people who don't have that problem. East or west, no difference. All the same. Yes, of course. Naturally. 
I mean, children, you can't expect to sit longer than five minutes or at the most then. <laughs> okay, what else have we got? I can't turn my head that far. <laughs> come over here. <laughs> come, come nearer. Sorry? I'm actually finding it hard and the concentration doesn't seem to be as good today as it was the first day. Really? What, do you know, have you got any idea what to attribute that to? Are you having expectations? Well, I'm very conscious that I'm eating a lot at the moment. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> yeah, and I think I'm saying, well, I'm finding it seems hard. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the ways I'm coping with it. Oh, I see, as a, as a consolation prize type of thing. <laughs> Yes, we're apt to do that sort of thing. Uh, but that's not due to the fact that the meditation is hard. It's due to the fact that uh, life happens to be hard at this time, is it? Yes. However, I think it's making me sort of feel full and sleepy. Yes, yes, it would. It would. Um, it's, um, if one really wants to meditate, one should at least uh, wait two hours and after having eaten and possibly eat lightly because it does make one feel heavy the food and if there is um, a problem in your life at this time and it keeps coming back into the mind is that what's happening okay question it why is it a problem what is it that i want that i'm not getting now keep on asking don't force yourself, oh, I should be meditating. At this, if that is happening, that this particular thing keeps coming back, it has an overriding quality. And the only way to get in there and get a little more clarity about it is by questioning it. Again, questioning every answer you get. Why am I disturbed? Because I'm not getting what I want. Why do I want it? get a lot of answers that way. Except that answers question those answers again. That's uh, also a meditative procedure. There's so many ways. Okay. Okay, what else? I thought we were going to get far more questions about this, uh, um, what I talked about earlier today the uh, purification of emotion because um, <coughs> you were questioning that yesterday and somebody else was also you were thank you yes yes well the word affection is used in as a translation of a Pali word. So if we leave that away and just say attachment, um, which means those people I'm calling mine and the ones I don't want to give up, the ones that are supposed to be around. And uh, that is the near enemy. Now in a family situation, that is usually the case. It also has a good side to it because at least one finds out what it feels like to love somebody. And with that, 
if one uses that as a seedbed, as a seed for rec recognizing what love is, and then trying to branch out from that rather than keeping it in such a confined environment where, because it isn't branching out, it also has a chance to wither and die, um, then it is being used in the right way. So we can use whatever we have for learning from it. Yes. And what is this? A feeling component. Uh, equanimity you can call even-mindedness. It, um, you can describe it as such that if something happens which is obviously unpleasant in some manner or form, either physically or um, could be unpleasant emotionally, you still realize it's impermanent, it's um, inherent substancelessness because it is impermanent, and the uh, dukkha contained in all of existence and the mind does not get perturbed about it. And the same with something that is p particularly pleasant. You know it's impermanent, it doesn't have a basic core substance, and also because it will disappear again, it has inherent unsatisfactoriness. The mind does not get perturbed about that either. The mind feels at ease in all situations. A relief? Um, no, it's not a feeling of relief. It's a feeling of being on a on an even level without having without up and down just an even level where whatever happens is acceptable and the real equanimity only comes from that insight which i've just described however we can practice it sorry well, in the Buddhist terminology, the emotions are also part of mind. The mind has four components. The first one is feeling, and the second is perception, the third one is mental formation, which is thinking, and the fourth one is sense contact, or sense consciousness. So in the Buddhist terminology, it is part of mind. But to make it more um, understandable, it is easier if we say, well, one is the heart and one is the mind. Although, very often in the translations, we find that the word mind isn't used. It's only the word heart that's used for all of it, for the whole lot. I was wondering how right mind forms the forest for everyday life. Um, if you say somebody being destructive, if somebody is destructive, mm -hmm. in what way? Well, affecting other people in a destructive way, if you're allowed to say anything out, if somebody is destructive to other people, like what? Killing, hitting, stealing, robbing, yeah. like what? Just that, 
Hmm? <laughs> yeah. Well, what will you do about it? Yeah. Tell them to stop or what? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're trying to love them and not to and think the right thoughts about them, then can you go up and say to them, well, I really think you've got to stop? I mean, or do you, and you also said that there's yesterday that um, the means to an end has to be good mm -hmm. as well. So, how do you juggle them? <laughs> You don't juggle anything. <laughs> if your heart and mind are at ease, you don't get perturbed about what other people are doing. It doesn't matter what they're doing. If you think you have any influence on other people, which is highly unlikely, we have very little influence on other people. We can hardly influence ourselves. I mean, if we had a lot of influence on ourselves, why don't we stay concentrated? Why don't we get concentrated and completely one point in our meditation if we could influence ourselves? I mean, everybody wants to, don't they? Well, how are you going to influence somebody else? Tell them to stop being stupid? Highly unlikely. But in real life, we do use good force and we do properly destructive mm -hmm. guys or, you know, oh, and... Oh. Oh, by sending the police after them or something. <laughs> well, but that, all right, but that's their business, that's not our business. When you talk about the inner emotions and uh, trying to purify your own emotions, it doesn't concern our policing other people. It concerns our own emotional life, our inner being. And as it concerns that, we try to keep that on an even keel. Now, if we do have some influence on somebody, it's possible that we may have, um, certainly we can talk to them. And I've, there's a formula that the Buddha used for the use of speech to other people. If you know anything that can be hurtful and is untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that can be hurtful and is true, don't say it. If you know anything that can be helpful and is untrue, don't say it. If you know anything that can be helpful and is true, find the right time. <laughs> so that takes away all impetuous speech and uh, impulsive reaction. It makes you think twice. So when we say something to other people, and we really think we have the ability to influence them, which is very doubtful, then we have to make sure that before we say anything, that it's first of all helpful, that it's true, and it's at the right time. I find In business? Yes. Well, no doubt. So how could I love somebody who, who is blind Well, what you can do is you can start out with compassion. You see, what you are asking now is, how am I going to be perfect? Why don't you ask, where do I start? First step. 
So the first step could be that this person who is uh, doing bad things is making bad karma. So you can have compassion for that person. If you react with dislike, you're only hurting yourself. I, I am a patient man sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and in some of my experience, the further I step back, the further I get abused, until I stand my right, and I think like, then we get to talk back. No, it's a wrong way of uh, looking at it. Uh, standing your ground is fine with love. Works perfectly. No problem. But standing your ground and hitting back, you are finding yourself on a battleground. You want to live on a battleground? Is that pleasant? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it's certainly not uh, conducive to peace of mind because you're constantly wanting to win. And the first and second noble truths are the noble truths of our dukkha, of our dissatisfaction, which is caused by our wanting. So when you find that that has, that you've done it long enough, you'll try differently. Yes, you had your hand up back there. You. I don't know, I haven't been physically attacked lately. <laughs> I'll have to wait <laughs> till it happens. I'd be very surprised, I'm sure. I have no idea, dear. I don't deal in conjectures. I deal in realities. If you want to know how to practice a Dhamma, I'd be happy to answer you. But conjecture, uh-uh. I have no idea. I don't know. When it happens, I will tell it. Okay, if it's happening to her, then it's a valid question. If it's a conjecture or if it's something that happens to other people, then we have to deal with it in a different context. You're talking about the message, right? <laughs> no, she's conjecturing. <laughs> yes. Just going back to the sidetrack on the last question, how do you cope with your own peace of mind when you stand back in the situation as large and get walked over? Um, well, you don't. You don't have to allow that. Turn the other well, you, when you know something that can be helpful to the other person, and it is true, you find the right time to tell them. You tell them with love and compassion. And if they can't abide by it, you might have to tell them again. But there do come situations in most everyone's life, not in everyone, where they come up against a, um, a condition which they're unable to cope with. And then one has to leave that situation. 
that does happen. But if one leaves that situation, it's useless to blame the other person for it. There is no blame. The only reality is that at this point in time, I'm incapable of dealing with this in a skillful way, so I'm going to remove myself. That's perfectly legitimate and valid. First one can try if that doesn't work. But if one hits back with this light, we are living in a constant war zone. And the inner war that people experience is the lack of peace that besets this globe. We are humanity. It's not them out there. It's us. And if we can't make peace with ourselves, by learning how to do it, peace will always escape us. And we have to have enough wisdom sometimes to know that a certain situation just has to be avoided at this time, because I'm not wise enough yet. Right? Yes. If you can't escape the situation, and then what? If it's universal, it doesn't have to torment you. If everybody, if everybody has the same dissatisfaction and unhappiness, what is there to torment you? This means being a human being. Of course it's causing suffering. Suffering is one of the three characteristics of this universe. Once you know what suffering really means, you will accept it and no, lo no longer suffer from it. Of course you can't change it, but you can change yourself. You know someone else's suffering, it's like... <laughs> like a few years ago, I had to go to the marriage bar, and every time I have to put you stop, or see me, it just flashbacks. Yes, well, the, the suffering that exists in this world is impossible for us to stop. Neither the Buddha nor Jesus were able to stop the suffering in this world. But we can stop ourselves. And that's the only influence we'll ever have. And if you still think you can have influence on others, first, make the mind strong enough to concentrate. And then you'll know I'm having some influence. And then others may or may not even listen. Who knows? We have very little strength. When the strength becomes, our mental strength becomes more, then we have a chance. <coughs> Suffering is one of the three characteristics of this universe, and we won't stop it, but we will stop ourselves. And that's the path, the Buddha's path. And if you see suffering of others, and there's nothing you can do about it, the only thing that we can do at that time is compassion. And a strong, compassionate um, reaction in our hearts is a tangible thing. It's not because it's not visible. It's not non-existent. It's quite tangible.
It is that existence. Anything else? Uh, desire and unconditional love. How they should st- stick together or what? <laughs> well, <I'm happy> <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> they di- diametrically opposed to each other. Can it? How do you manage that? What kind of love? Well, surely you must have something in mind, otherwise you wouldn't be asking that. What's that what you have in mind about desire and love? Sorry? Of the ordinary kind of love into unconditional love. Certainly there has to be a transformation of the whole person. If we don't transform ourselves and stay within the worldly realm, within that worldly realm, what we are after is trying to find our satisfaction by getting the cherry on top of the cake. We've all got the cake, so now we want the cherry on top. It doesn't work. The only way to do it is by getting rid of the cake. Craving is the underlying, um, most tenuous inner life that any human being has and constantly creates dissatisfaction. Constantly. Craving. No, it's the same thing. It's just a different word. Most tenuous is the most sticky one. <laughs> Six. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't hear that. No, it's not the basis. Our basis is craving. The basis for all that stuff is craving. But fear is a result. Because when we crave something, we don't know whether we're going to get it. And when we have it, we're fairly sure we're not going to keep it, although we try to kid ourselves we are. And uh, the, uh, so fear is constantly um, in the background and sometimes even in the foreground that whatever it is that we want, we won't get, and whatever it is that we got already, we're going to lose. No, fear is the result of the craving. <laughs> Craving is the basis. <coughs> Unfortunately, we won't get, be able to do the whole, um, not even <laughs> a tenth of the um, Buddha's teaching in such a short time that we're together here. 
I've picked out those things for you which I felt would give you a start into the practice. Um, craving goes already one step further and uh, goes into the characteristics of existence, which I have mentioned, but it takes far more than just a few afternoons uh, to, under, to really get um, sort of a grip on that particular aspect of our lives. Um, for that, I can suggest uh, that, as you probably have seen by now, for the Australia Day weekend, there will be an intensive meditation course. So if you really are serious about this, you can still register for that Australia Day weekend, which um, will not be this weekend but the following, and uh, it's mentioned on this blue sheet that's lying up here. What else? If you want uh, copies of the tapes that were made here from my talks, you can order them in the bookshop. And I bring some more of my books tomorrow for those who mightn't have gotten one, so that you don't feel neglected. And somebody else had their hand up. Who was that? You? Yes. Well, non-fidelity is even worse. Hmm? Non-fidelity is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no marriage will last which doesn't have meta in it. In the beginning it may last a few years, but without it it will not go on. So there have to, in any relationship with, between two people, that becomes uh, lasting and close, there has to be that unconditional love, unconditional meaning that you don't love them because they're so nice and so good all the time, because they're not. So that has to be a part of it. So it allows, uh, the concept of unconditional love will still allow for a particular one partner as, as, as uh, a dominating it's just your attitude towards that person. Yes, that's quite correct. And also, to use that particular um, loving feeling to that one person as a seed in order to branch out. Okay, we've got that far. All right. Something else? Suffering is one of the three I've mentioned them many times. Impermanence, and I call suffering usually unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness, substancelessness. These are the three. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, and Pali. All right, we've gone over time. I shall look forward to seeing you tomorrow afternoon. I have so far given you indications of first of all how to meditate, what possibilities there are, what benefits you get, and also 
how to change your mind and how to change your emotions and what not only is a benefit of concentration in meditation but also the benefit of seeing things a little more the way they are now these are two factors of or two tiers of a three-tiered teaching the Buddhist teaching is very exact and it contains three major divisions in Pali there is Sila Samadhi and Panya Samadhi is concentration I've told you about it as much as I can in this short time I've told you about Panya much as possible wisdom insight clarity through understanding things the way they are not the way we'd like them but sila is moral conduct and without moral conduct there is no spiritual path and there is no meditation although I've left it to the last it's always mentioned first it always goes sila samadhi and panya moral conduct concentration wisdom it doesn't always arise in that order sometimes we have to get a little more wisdom before we understand that moral conduct is a necessity for our own happiness so it doesn't matter in what order one finds out about them or talks about them what is important is to know that all three are dependent upon each other moral conduct in the Buddhist terminology concerns primarily what are called the five precepts five precepts for everyone no difference what one does who one is a basic way of living living with oneself and others but they are not worded thou shalt not they are worded I undertake the training to refrain from the Buddha was a realist pragmatist he realized that we needed to be trained he realized that we weren't going to be perfect and very virtuous right by saying you can't do that you've got to do something else so it is a training that one undertakes in conjunction with meditative training if one doesn't have that as a base the meditation isn't going to come together in fact one's going to have far too many other interests in order to make meditation important enough now there are five things that one needs to train oneself in to avoid and not have in one's life however we need to train ourselves in their opposite and if we have that as a basic guideline and can remember especially when the situation or the circumstances 
for ourselves. What we haven't got in our own hearts, we can't give to anybody. But if, as, it is that if we were a beggar without a penny in our pocket, and we'd like to give arms to all the people that we see who need it, first we have to fill our own pocket. In this case, our own. And as we have filled it, then we have no other choice except anyone who feels love in their heart gives it up. No heart because then it hasn't done. Whoever had love, it comes out. This is the first of the five, which is refraining from one. Thing, the opposite. Second one is, I'm going to refrain from taking what is not eaten, which is little more than not feeling, as being careful with other people's property, not taking paper clips from somebody else's books, being that minute and detailed in one's responsibility towards other people's belongings. Looking after other people's things more carefully as it were than our own. But the opposite is generosity. Generosity lies at the beginning, at the top of all the things Why is that? Because generosity is a letting go of self. The whole of this path, if one keeps on, on it, takes one to the lessening of egocentricity and finally to the loss of the self illusion. Illusion which brings unhappiness to all of mankind. Generosity is the first step. Without it, there is no lessening of this ego form that wants to get rather than Buddha said there were two kinds of generosity. The first one is the generosity of the beggar. That's when we give the stuff away we don't have any more. Like our old clothes to dismiss them. Then comes the generosity of a friend. That's sharing. Sharing what one has with others. And then comes the generosity of a team. Giving away more than one keeps. Very rare have people become famous because they're so good. We might as well aim for the generosity of a friend. It's greatly facilitated if our meditation has come together to the point where we no longer feel ourselves to be a separate unit, totally alienated from everybody else, threatened by the immensity of the universe and the enormous number of other people. But feel ourselves without those limits of this very 
small and dumb, sweet little person, rather than that connected to the whole. And we feel like that, we know, makes no difference in practice, as long as it's beautiful. We no longer look for the having of more than the next one, or more than we had last week or last year, but being able to share it with those who need it. If we haven't got that kind of meditative experience, if there is a totality in this world, which is a totality of manifestation and has nothing to do with individuality, if we haven't got that, we've got to make ourselves be generous. Without it, our egocentricity will continually play havoc in our mind. We'll never be able to get everything we want. Nobody does. And even if we do, nobody can keep it. We might as well resign ourselves to the fact that there's a minimum that one needs, and that's enough. The Buddha said there are four rectors. Enough food not to be hungry, enough clothing not to have to go without cover, a roof over one's head, and medicine when sick. When you get home, you can check out what else you've got. In an affluent society, we've got far more than that. But if we take our spirituality seriously, we have to reconsider. It doesn't mean that we've got to be poor. It just means that we can become human. And the one who does that immediately realizes that this is a great source of and also that there is a law of nature which works in a very strange way and has never yet failed. The more one gives, the more one has. Otherwise, if one hasn't got it, I can't give it. And it keeps on resurrecting it. However, most people are scared they're going to lose something. They mightn't have enough for their old age. Who's got a guarantee that they're going to get old? Anybody got a written guarantee? Unless you're old already, you have to figure nobody's going to get old. So what's there to worry about? We are looking for security in the most absurd places. The biggest houses in most cities belong to the insurance company. We insure ourselves. We insure ourselves against death and poverty and all sorts of calamities. If we love and give, we are perfectly insured. We're perfectly insured against unhappiness. We're perfectly insured against egocentricity. 
was perfect in shield against fear, alienation, loneliness, and isolation. What else doesn't want to be insured against? Those are the most important things we can insure ourselves. The Buddha said something else about generosity. He spoke about it very often. He called it one of the city's blessings in the great blessing discourse. Um, he said that the purity of the receiver purifies the gift. Now that means that if we can be generous to people who have good intentions, what to do with that money or the material you're giving them. Then the gift is pure. We have given it to someone where we think, at least, that the intention of giving it is one of purity. Giving is not strictly always money, it's not always just strictly material things. It can be time, it can be listening, it's loving, care, and concern. It's being there for others. When one is there for others, there's no way one can have a personal problem. Even if there was one, there would be no attention to it. And as one uses one's time and ability, to be there for others, the personal problems disappear because one doesn't put one's attention on that what one wants, but rather on that what one gives. It's so simple, it's almost absurdly simple, and it's exactly the other way around from the way humanity lives. It takes a spiritual master, like the Buddha, to point it out. And it takes those, as the Buddha said, who have little dust in their eyes to follow on that path. When the Buddha first became enlightened, <coughs> he didn't like to teach, because he thought that people didn't under wouldn't understand what he had to tell them. But then, on reconsideration, he saw with clairvoyance that there were some people, not many, who had little dust in their eyes, not in the physical eye, in the inner eye, and that they would understand this round turnabout of one's being. So that's when he taught. And we are fortunate that to this day we have that teaching available. The third one is to undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Now, sexual misconduct is not necessarily physical, it can be emotional. The uh, opposite is to be faithful, reliable, responsible, a person that others can rely upon, and a person that we ourselves can rely upon. If we can't rely upon ourselves because our passions get away from us, we'll never feel at ease and secure about ourselves. If we know that we can be 
white throne by passion will feel ill at ease. And the feeling of knowing that there is a rock-like quality which makes one not only faithful in a sexual relationship, but a responsible friend, a reliable acquaintance, someone who will keep his or her word. That kind of feeling is security in oneself, another insurance policy. Self-confidence comes from knowing that one can't be strong by one's own emotions. That one's going to react in a responsible manner, not hurtful to oneself or others. The fourth one is the hardest one to keep. It's to undertake the training to refrain from lying, harsh words, backbiting, gossip, and idle chatter. That very last one is the one where everybody falls down. But at least we've got something that will give us a guideline. Obviously the opposite is right speech. I've already given you the formula for right speech. And although lying may be something that we don't particularly want or do, there are social white lies that we sometimes feel obliged to utter and could be avoided. There is gossiping and there is particularly other chatter. Other chatter means talking for talking sake. It's the cheapest and easiest available entertainment that we have. If we have nothing else to do, we can always get on the telephone or talk to somebody who's available about nothing else. Because most people do that, their minds remain shallow. A shallow mind can never grasp the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha was a spiritual master who showed us the way out of every human problem. But in order to understand that and actually do it, we need to use our mind to its fullest possibility and ability. We're always using it only in a very minor way. We need to watch our conversation. The hindrances which we have, which make our life difficult, one of them being ill will, all have specific antidotes, but they all have one common antidote. And that's noble friends and noble conversation. To have noble friends means that we find the kind of people with whom we can have conversations which go a little bit beyond the everyday activities that everybody's engaged in. 
and we keep our consciousness and our awareness on the everyday level, in the marketplace level, where everything is concerned with either having or not having, with wanting or not wanting, with yours or mine, where our concerns are so superficial that they can never make us understand what it means to be human being. To find such noble friends, we need to be in the kind of environment where such people can be found. Birds of a feather flock together. And when we have such friends, noble conversations will follow. A noble conversation is something that's meaningful. It doesn't have to be a repetition of the Buddha's teachings, or it doesn't have to be a, um, a reading out of the Bible or something like that. A noble conversation is a meaningful conversation which will help us in our struggle for happiness and peace. It will help us without sense gratification, but you can always use that criteria for a noble conversation. Is it about sense gratification or is it about purification? Very simple. And just use those two as the opposite measure. Conversation is part of the food we put into the mind. You remember the very first day when we came together? I told you that health food for the mind is far more important than health food for the body. If you can get both of them. But health food for the mind is the most important thing. And one has to have enough wisdom to know what is health food for the mind. If one uses mindfulness again and again, one will find out, one will notice whether one's understanding is growing, remaining static, or deteriorating. Because nothing remains static for any length of time, but either growing or deteriorating. Mental deterioration is a foregone conclusion if we neither meditate nor try to give our mind that which will help us to actually delve into the absolute the underlying To watch our conversations, it's an important thing to do because we have a lot of them. We speak a lot. So we should be very much aware of what we're saying and what it is all about, what we're talking about. This is the aspect of right speech, which is most difficult. The rest of it is skillfulness. Most of us have opportunities where we like to influence others through our speech. So we don't have the skill to do it. That can be learned. And it has to do with a lack of 
aggression and a lack of enmity and a feeling of togetherness. Communication skills are important in most people's lives, but they do not concern being oriented. They concern the purity of our feelings. We have a far greater chance of making somebody else believe what we're saying if they know that we're saying it for their good with love in our heart. The last one of the five is to undertake the training to refrain from drugs and alcoholic substances or intoxicating substances. Refrain from intoxicating substances. Now that drugs it means intoxicating drugs, not medicinal drugs. And they obviously confuse the mind far more than the mind already confused. And as you can see, this was formulated two and a half thousand years ago and not yesterday. So the problem has remained the same. And in those days, the Buddha, nobody had ever heard about Australia. The antidote for this particular problem is meditation and mindfulness. Mindfulness clears the mind. Meditation strengthens the mind. Intoxicating substances weaken the mind. The more of those we take, the weaker the mind is. They are designed for sensual gratification, which is the first of our five humans. Sensual gratification, which is easily available and very intrinsic. Sensual gratification is one of the three major cravings which we are beset with. And as a craving, it of course creates a lot of unsatisfaction. Not only that, you need to expend time and energy to satisfy the craving, but because the gratification is so short-lived, we have to do it over and over again. And in the end, spend our life trying to do that. Sensual gratification is an automatic happening in a human being's life and can be gratefully accepted. But to use our time or to waste our time trying to get more than what we already have or more interesting gratification than we already have is food. Mindfulness is the antidote, and mindfulness can be practiced, as I've already mentioned to you, in business. Being aware, being awake, and
Mindfulness in daily living is the one thing I'd like you to take with you. Whether you're going to continue meditating will depend on the amount of dukkha you're having. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, is everybody's best teacher. If you've got enough of it, you'll meditate. If you haven't got enough of it, you'll let it go again. However, mindfulness, being aware and awake and knowing what one is doing, what one is feeling, what one is thinking, and the content of the thought, that makes life far more expensive, far more interesting, gives it an added dimension of self-understanding and thereby the understanding of everyone else. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O monk, lies in this, fathom long body and mind, one fathom an old-fashioned measurement. Everything we know about ourselves is what we will know about the world. What we don't know about ourselves will be totally hidden until we find out. I have talked to you about mindfulness at some length, so whatever you remember from that, that you can come. If Dukkha starts you, any kind of unhappiness, any kind of a situation in which you don't like. Be grateful. You couldn't get a better teacher. If you get a, if you have a human teacher and you sit there and your knees are aching and you come to the teacher and say, you know, I can't sit like that, I'm grateful. It is a lot. The teacher will say, oh, I'm very sorry, but you know, if you have to go home, go home. And if you say that to Dukkha, I say, you know, I've had enough of this, I'm going home. Dukkha said, that's fine, but I'm coming along. <laughs> <laughs> it's the teacher par excellence, there's nothing compared to it. So don't knock it, don't uh, get angry with Dukkha, don't object to it. Look at it and say, aha, it has come. What am I now learning? Mindfulness helps us to do that. Bear attention, introspection, getting to know oneself. The day has 24 hours. If we haven't got an hour to look at ourselves, we might as well not be alive. We must find some time to look inside. And if we have that hour, we can spend half an hour meditating and half an hour Contemplating ourselves, contemplating all the reactions, all the wishes, all the unfulfilled dreams, and see whether we really need all that. And the Buddha gave a very interesting discourse to a group of people who were called the Kalama people. It's a uh, tribe of people. They were. Um, uh, highly intelligent people with quite good education and when we came to see them they had not heard him before 
they had not uh, been his uh, followers or anything like that, but they had heard that he was an interesting uh, teacher and they all came out to listen to him. And uh, then the spokesman stood up and said that many teachers had come to their village and each one of them had been able to propound his own teaching extremely well, but had also said that it was the only one that was valid. All the other teachers were not true. And now they heard that so many different ones that they knew no longer what to do. They were very doubtful. I was two and a half years, two and a half thousand years ago, but it could have been last week, couldn't it? So the Buddha said, Kalamas, you are doubtful in a doubtful matter. And then he said, give them all the precepts. And he said, now, if somebody breaks one of these precepts, will that be to your happiness and advantage? And they said, no. If somebody keeps that precept, will it be to the happiness and advantage of yourself and the whole religion? They said, yes. So he said, the first thing to remember is then that any teaching that you can follow must contain that kind of moral conduct. And then he gave a number of reasons which are not useful in following a spiritual teaching. And it's the first time, and probably the last time in human history, that a teacher included himself. He said, don't follow a teaching because it's a tradition. Don't follow a teaching because it's written in a holy book. A holy book. Don't follow a teaching because it's been handed down from teacher to disciple. Don't follow a teaching because you like it anyway, whatever they're telling you that you like that anyway. Don't follow a teaching because it has some mystical connotation. Don't follow a teaching when you have to defend it. That the doesn't, um, doesn't make a great deal of sense that you've got to defend it. Don't follow it because your family or your friends are going there too. Don't follow it because the teacher is a very reputable person. And don't follow it because the teacher said so. Only follow it if you yourself have found out that it is of benefit to you, gives you a, a better growth, gives purification to your own heart and mind, you have nothing to defend, all you have to do is practice. This is the one of the most famous discourses of the Buddha, the Kalamakita, which tells us quite clearly that he said, don't believe a word, but find out for yourself. And if you find out that this is true and right, do it. If not, do something else. We'll have our last meditation together now, and uh, I can only hope that also in the future you will continue to do meditation.
and try to practice our spiritual teaching. So if you'd like to stand up and stretch your legs.